Well, good afternoon, everybody, uh, and welcome to the Atlantic Council for what I think will be a, a wonderful session this afternoon. The fact that so many of you are here uh, is testament to that. Uh, I'm Dick Morningstar. I'm the founding director and chairman of the Global Energy Center, and we at the Global Energy Center are very pleased to partner with our colleagues here in the Adrian Arsht Latin America Center uh, to host today's event weathering the storm, <clears throat> low oil prices, and economic and political stability in Latin America. All of us here are aware of the profound changes that have occurred in global energy markets in the last year. So I'm not going to expound upon that at length. Instead, I'm going to introduce our speakers and then turn things over to uh, my partner in crime, David Goldwyn, and uh, our distinguished uh, panel. Uh, the panel today uh, includes uh, Juan Gonzalez, who serves as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Western Hemisphere Affairs at the State Department with responsibility for U.S. diplomatic engagement and policy implementation in Central America and the Caribbean. He previously served as a special advisor to Vice President Biden and as an NSC Director for Western Hemisphere Affairs. Uh, Daniel, Daniel Kerner uh, is the Latin America practice head uh, at the Eurasia Group, where his work focuses on politics and economic and regulatory policies uh, in the region. <clears throat> Luisa Palacios is the head of Latin America at Medley Global Advisors, where she focuses on macroeconomic and energy trends in the region. And she previously worked on Latin America issues at Barclays Capital and the Japanese Bank of International Cooperation. Lisa Vesidi is the program director for the energy, climate change, and extractive, indus and extractive industries at the uh, Inter-American Dialogue and a renowned expert on Latin American energy issues. Uh, and, of course, Jason Marzak is here at the Atlantic Council as the director of the Latin American Economic Growth Initiative, and he helped to launch the Council's Latin America Center and brings more than 15 years of experience focusing on regional economics, politics, and development. And our moderator, uh, David Goldwyn, is the chairman of our Energy Advisory Group at the Atlantic Council. Uh, he's a non-resident senior fellow uh, at the uh, uh, at the Adrian Arsht Latin American Center, Latin America Center, and he previously has been special envoy and coordinator for international energy affairs at the State Department and numerous other government positions, going back to when we were working together in the 90s uh, on all sorts of energy issues. Um, as a uh, <clears throat> Finally, also nice to see uh, Tony Wayne here, an old friend and former U.S. ambassador to Mexico, among other things. As a, a final uh, housekeeping note, I would encourage you all to join the conversation on Twitter, and you can follow along at AC Global Energy and AC LATAM, and by utilizing hashtag AC Energy. I'm too old to know how to do all that stuff, but, but maybe you all do. So <clears throat> without, uh, without further ado, uh, I'll turn things over to David and our distinguished panelists. Thank you. Thank you, Dick. And thanks up front to Annie Medallia and Chris Brown for organizing this session today. And thanks all of you for joining. 
this low oil price cycle has had a pretty dramatic effect on the hemisphere. Uh, a lot of the national oil companies are in deep fiscal trouble. A lot of the countries which are heavily reliant on oil and gas exports are having their credit downgraded. And, um, and political stability of some of these countries is, is certainly in question. So with the tremendous panel that we have today, we're gonna try and run through a lot of those issues. We'll start with the macro risk issues uh, on the economic side, then we'll talk about the major political risk issues, and then uh, in relatively rapid fire succession, we'll talk about Venezuela, Mexico, Colombia, Latin America, and the Caribbean, uh, and the areas where we've got some significant challenges, and a couple of areas where we're seeing some really creative adaptation and, uh, and some, some creative change as well. But um, let's start this morning with the, the macro issues. And Louisa, let's start with you. What are the, the countries and what are the companies that you are most worried about? And are we looking at um, defaults in the next uh, six months to a year of some of these? Um, thank you so much for the invitation. And, and yes, David, um, I think the, you know, the 70% uh, decline in oil prices is a, is a major shock for some of these countries where oil revenues are between, have been between 20 to 50% of total fiscal revenues or have been 50% to 90% of all export re of uh, total export revenue. So this is a, this is a quite, uh, quite a shock and it is no wonder that we are actually now starting to question uh, some of the financial viability of uh, countries and even national companies. Um, when we look at default uh, risk, I think the, the obvious one is definitely Venezuela and the national company PDVSA just because of the significant debt service uh, payments that it has come in due in relation to the capacity that it has to pay them. Uh, and I think this is uh, across the board consensus uh, uh, right now in, uh, in financial markets and, uh, and across the board. Um, but um, Understanding default risk, I think there's another measure uh, which is very useful, I think, from the point of view of markets, which is that what we see in all of these countries and on the national companies is that they're that the risk that the markets have of their default uh, risk have, have increased. And with that, not that they're going to default any of these, uh, only Venezuela is the clear candidate, but what we see is that default risk translates into a much higher financial cost. And so, you know, a, a company like Petrobras used to uh, lend itself or, or uh, issuing global markets at 4%, 5% yields, and now we're seeing 13% yields. Uh, a country like Ecuador is now seeing 20% yields. And, and what we have seen across the board in the last year is a significant increase in the financial cost uh, for all of these uh, companies and countries. And that starts to put a lot of much, much more pressure, not only on the, on the finances of the companies, but also of the, of the countries. Well, let's talk about uh, Pemex and Pedavesa a little bit. They carry a lot of responsibilities other than running an oil company. Yeah. Um, uh, is, there a, is there a way out for them, some sort of restructuring or recapitalization yeah. that might um, make them more solvent? I mean, overall, one of the very uh, thing, important things that is happening is that you are seeing a significant decline in the dependence of the governments on those fiscal oil revenues, whether they want it or not. Uh, and so, for example, in the case of Mexico, fiscal oil revenues used to represent 35% of the budget, 35% of uh, oil revenues in Mexico. Now it's less than 20. In, in Ecuador, it's now zero. In Colombia, it's now zero. Uh, uh, so, I mean, one of the ways in which these companies are adjusting is that, well, they're not giving any 
exchange money to, to their governments uh, because they just don't have any money to give. But I, more, more than that, the way to look at this is that when you have uh, that uh, the oil prices for most of these countries are between 20 to $25 per barrel and the break-evens, and break-even is an is a, is a overcompassing uh, concept in which how much does it cost you to really uh, uh, produce oil. It's not the lifting cost, but, but, the, uh, but, the, but the whole production of, of oil. And the break-evens in most of these companies are between 20 to 25 So pretty much some of these companies are already producing at a loss, or not, if not really break-evens. Uh, what does that mean? That they have no cash flow. And so what does that mean? That they, how are they going to service their debt? They actually have to resort to debt or lower their payments to, um, to the companies or as in, uh, to have a significant reduction in CapEx. And so because some of these companies are already in deep financial trouble, and I'm just going to give you an example, Pemex uh, 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 up to the third quarter had an accumulated uh, loss of $20 billion. Uh, it's already running arrears with its service providers of $7 billion. And that is a story that we see across the board. So how do you deal with that? Well, you have to now start to think about recapitalization. So actually, not only that the companies are not providing to the governments, but now the governments have to uh, have to come in and, uh, and save them. Well, one more before we turn to Daniel. Um, how is this going to affect um, global oil balances? Are we looking, yeah. we've, we've looked at projects that are deferred, but is actual production going to be impacted and when? We actually are penciling in a decline of, of 300,000 barrels per day in oil production for the region as a whole this year. And it, that's our base case scenario, meaning that there's even a scenario where it's, uh, it's, it's worse than that. Let me just run you through some numbers. Uh, oil production in Mexico, the last number, is a decline of 100,000 barrels per day year on year. In, uh, in Petrobras, that just uh, in 2014 added 200,000 barrels per day of oil to the market, is now uh, running at only 20,000 barrels per day of at least positive uh, growth. Uh, Venezuela is having 150,000 barrels per day of decline oil production, the last number. Colombia is having 50,000 barrels per day. So our 300,000 barrels per day of aggregate production declines seems very conservative at the time. Why? Because if, you're if you have zero break-evens that are at zero with this level of oil prices, some of the production that you're having is actually coming at a loss. So you have to slash capex. If you slash capex, where's future production going to come? You're going to either have shut-ins or you're going to significantly delay future productions. Or what has been happening for a year, you are significantly cutting rigs. Uh, uh, and that is a forward-looking indicator of activity. And so it is, it is no surprise that we're actually now starting to see those declines. It's a grim picture. Daniel, let me turn to you. So how much, uh, how much are you worrying about the political stability of some of these producers, and particularly if you can touch on, uh, on Venezuela and, and Brazil? Sure. No, I mean, I think, unfortunately, it's, it's grim as well, right? I mean, I think the, the region is entering a new cycle of politics that's going to be very challenging. And I think, it, in, 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 to a great extent, it's a function of where we're coming from. Uh, we're coming from of an era of high economic growth driven by high commodity prices, including oil prices that increased fiscal revenues, eased fiscal and external constraints, which had a correlate on social dynamics in terms of reduction in poverty, reduction in equality, and had a political effect, which was precedents that were very powerful and very popular. 
now we're entering into a different cycle. If you look at throughout the region, growth is slowing down, that the decline in oil prices and other commodities is adding pressure on governments on the fiscal side, on the external side, adding pressure to make adjustments at a time where politicians are actually losing popularity, right? I mean, one thing that we keep saying is that, you know, a lot of the economists talk about the new normal in terms of growth. What we see is a new normal in terms of approval ratings. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that we're seeing political troubles throughout the region with, with a few exceptions. And I think what makes matters worse is that because we're coming out of this cycle, the political room for governments to actually do some of these adjustments is very difficult because the level of expectations is very high. And we also have growing and new demands from these electorates that want to see the low unemployment and growing social services include. So I think as a whole, the region is entering into a difficult environment. Now, obviously, the ones that are most obviously in trouble are the, the leftist governments, the one that mismanaged the boom. Venezuela, of course, I think it's the best example. And, and there it's very hard to see a way out other than a political, social, and, and big economic crisis. Brazil is probably going to remain in deep trouble for, for the foreseeable future also without a way out. Maybe not as dramatic as in Venezuela, but with the economy falling you know, in free fall, and I think things getting increasingly complicated. Obviously, you know, things like that are going to happen in Ecuador as well. I think Argentina escaped the curse to some extent because of the election. But, you know, but, but it's, it's not easy for the government. You know, if you see Macri trying to do a very gradual adjustment and already starting to run into trouble with that. But I think the region that's, or the sector of the region that's particularly interesting is the Indian countries, right? I mean, because those were, you know, and, and by this I mean Chile, Colombia, and Peru, which were really the, the success stories of the past decade. But those are the ones that are particularly vulnerable. And I think in that case in Colombia, now with a decline in oil prices, that's going to add enormous pressure on the government to actually focus on some of the reforms at a time where it's not going to be that easy, I think, to find new engines of growth. So I think, in general, the region as a whole is more problematic. And, and, and finally, you know, Mexico, to a great extent, was always separate from this category because it's not a commodity exporter, it's tied to the US, so it, it looked like a brighter picture. But this is also having a big impact because it's affecting payments, it's affecting the fiscal revenue, it's affecting growth, and will probably have important longer-term repercussions in terms of the politics. Terrific. Well, let's take, spend a couple of minutes on Argentina, because it's not often that Argentina gets to be the bright spot in the hemisphere, <laughs> but they certainly seem to be now. Every 12 years. So, uh, so uh, before, before they mess it again. <laughs> oh, we've got we to we have faith. Um, but can you talk a little bit about um, what are the reforms that are, that are making Argentina successful? How much of these are Macri's? How much of these were in place in the, the last days of the Kirchner regime? And is it sustainable? Yeah, no, I, th I think there was a, a little bit like in Venezuela, I think there was a, a general consensus among most of the political class and the economists and the analysts looking at Argentina at what things needed to be done right after the government. The previous government, I don't think, did that many, that there had to be a lifting of FX controls, a devaluation, a fiscal adjustment, a reduction in subsidies, and you know, an effort to try to tap international markets and international capital. And that's what this government is doing. It's following that recipe. Um, and, uh, and I think it's following it well. I think the, what the previous government tried to do and then couldn't follow through because of its problems in New York with, with the court was essentially try to find a new engine to try to sustain the party, which was foreign capital, because Argentina, in contrast to the rest of the region, is really an under-leveraged economy. That's a lot of what this government is focusing. I think the, problems is, uh, the problem that Macri is facing is that he won by a very slight margin. He, I think, you know, if you had had a couple more weeks, he may have lost that election. The appetite in the population for a serious adjustment is not there. I think people wanted things to get better, a president that screamed less, but things to remain more or less the same. And that's the problem he's facing. So he did a devaluation, he's trying to tap markets, and he's doing a very gradual, yet painful, fiscal adjustment, which is affecting his ability to bring down inflation. I think the doubts that a lot of people are starting to have now is, 
is Macri going to be forced eventually in the next two, three months to actually make a more serious adjustment? And to some extent, I think it will depend on his ability to tap markets. But I think his, the faith that his government had on his ability to really attract investment quickly is not falling. So I think even there, even though you're clearly going to be in a better path than when you were before, these challenges that I described are, are, are pretty much alive. He's, he, yeah. In Argentina, I think that you know the, what Macri is doing has shown. I mean, he's brought in this amazing group of young technocrats. I mean, some of the the best of the best in Argentina are part of this part of this new Macri government. And you know, even in just in the first few months, you know, Daniel mentioned you know the the thirty percent devaluation effectively of the peso right before mm -hmm. the Christmas holidays. But you know, they're they're now on the cusp of a of a deal uh, with the holdout creditors in New York, and that's going to allow Argentina to reinsert into international financial markets, international capital markets. And so I think it's it's there there are, as Daniel said. There's some very short-term pains that the Argentine population are going to face, and Macri has a real big political challenge in trying to mitigate those, those pains such that it doesn't usurp his support. But at the same time, the posturing he's showing toward the international community, toward the U.S., toward Europe, and others, is allowing Argentina to not be solely dependent on China as it was during the, uh, during the Fernandez de Kirchner years uh, for its uh, foreign flows. What, but he's also um, fixed domestic natural gas and oil prices considerably above market prices, which is terrific. I think U.S. producers would love to have access to those prices, too. But it's expensive for the government, even though it's incentivizing production. Is that sustainable? And what happens to production if that disappears? I, th I think they're, they're, they, they have a problem there. I mean, it was interesting to see when, when the new government came in, they wanted to liberalize the prices and go to import parity immediately. And they were told by the producers and the governors and the unions. You do that and you have a social explosion. And so they had to accept to lower a little bit but keep this domestic uh, oil prices at pretty high levels. Uh, but knowing that they can't sustain it because someone's got to pay, the consumer pays it, but the consumer now has to pay everything else. Uh, and the government is also having to do an adjustment. My sense is that the focus that they're trying to do is refocus the effort towards natural gas. There's a market there. Prices can go up there. They've been frozen. So I think that's where a little bit of the, of the attention is going to go. That may provide some investment there, but I think it's, it's hard to see much beyond that. right? And on the oil side, they do have a problem in that they have a price that they can't sustain, but they can't lift it because otherwise they'll be in real trouble. And there's no political room in Argentina to actually have big unemployment in oil-producing regions. Mm -hmm. Luisa, did you want to jump in? Uh, no, what I think is that the, the way to look at, at these countries is on a relative basis. Yes, I mean, the, uh, looking at Argentina is, is problematic what we see, and there's some challenges. That said, the, the, the national oil company, YPF, um, is facing uh, oil prices that are above $60 per barrel. Um, and it's an integrated company. And so the way it looks, and the finances are, are strong because Argentina, uh, believe it or not, has one of the highest gasoline prices in the region, maybe in the planet, it's uh, it's about. It used to be five dollars uh, uh, per gallon, and now it's uh, it, it lowered to three dollars per gallon. So the Argentines are paying the lowest natural gas, but the highest gasoline prices. And so that's great for for YPF and its balances. So as long as uh, uh, as you keep increasing gasoline prices, not by the same amount of the inflation, uh, YPF balances are going to be affected. But relatively to the rest of the region, it, it actually looks uh, looks you know having three dollars per gallon and having 
$160 a, a, a barrel, realized barrel, it's, it's, it's not a bad deal, even if it's, uh, uh, it's coming from a low, uh, a low base. The second thing is that oil production is not falling, oil production is stable. And as uh, Daniel is saying, is that most of the company, all the companies in Argentina are oil and gas producers. And, then, and, and the, the share of oil and gas is, is very, very divided in relation to the, any other national company in, in the rest of the region. But the, why is that important? It's because Argentina has to import the LNG or natural gas from Bolivia at five, six dollars per barrel, at five to six dollars per million of BTU. So the local producers are facing five to six dollars per million of BTU. That is a great deal. Uh, so, I mean, it, it means that you have, it's not that it's great, but relatively to the rest of the region and what all of the other companies are facing, you have some support. And so you can be constructive. And that's the reason why YPF stock is up. That's the reason why YPF yields have gone down. And that's the reason why on a relative basis, it looks better. Terrific. Lisa, that's a great transition to you. I know you're following the industry uh, in, in the hemisphere. So um, how are they reacting to, to this cycle? Is this, uh, is this a time of opportunity to buy assets uh, cheaply, or are people just uh, hunkering down for uh, waiting for the price to recover? Well, I think one of the trends that I see across the region is really stiff cap competition for capital. So I think in almost every single country, you see you know, governments reacting and adjusting their terms. In the more, the, the countries that were already sort of more investment friendly, you know, Mexico, Colombia, Peru, they're cutting taxes, they're extending exploration periods, um, they're reducing minimum investments. So they're really trying to attract an investment. And then I also think that even in some of the more sort of nationalist um, energy policy countries, you even see, I, I wouldn't say a, a reversal of resource nationalism, but I see a sort of chipping away at resource nationalism. Um, I think, and there are a couple of really interesting examples like Brazil, there's a proposal now in the Congress uh, to essentially eliminate uh, what was effectively a monopoly by Petrobras over the pre-salt. Um, and I think there are a couple of examples like that where you, where you see a sort of reversal in policy. And I also think it ties into what Danielle mentioned, which is you have a lot of incumbent presidents that had more sort of nationalist policies, including in the energy sector, and they are now weaker um, because the economies are weaker because of the um, lower oil prices. And so they're in less, they have less power to sort of implement the policies that they, that they were putting in place. And people feel that their, the returns on those more nationalist policies, you know, they're just not delivering the returns that they were before. So I, I think there's sort of a shift in, in the outlook for investment. Um, I also think that sort of broadly speaking, you know, just returning to what Luisa said earlier, um, I, I think I agree that production is, is going to decline. And I also think you have to keep in mind that we're seeing an increasing supply demand gap. Um, because while production in the region was flat for years, demand is increasing. So, you know, the, the balance is becoming more and more negative. And I also think that um, one of the big, you know, what are the measures that countries can take uh, in response to lower oil prices? Um, and, and sometimes companies and countries are sort of in a similar situation. I think companies are, are increasing debt, but some companies don't have the ability to do that, or it's very expensive, as Lisa mentioned. Um, and they're cutting CapEx, and so they're, they're going to see in the future there's going to be a reduction in, in production, and some countries really aren't in a position where they can afford that. I think Colombia really stands out. They have very, their reserve life, you know, the years that they can go at this production level without replacing reserves is less than seven years, which is very low. So... I think you know steps are being taken now that are are going to lead to a real crunch in the future that I think is going to be a big problem. Well, let me press you just a little bit. So if Brazil changes its framework a bit, if Colombia kind of keeps what it has, if Mexico continues to be 
uh, you know, to, to sort of listen and, and, and adapt to market conditions, you see money going in. Even though there's big CapEx cuts all over the world, you think that companies will find opportunity and we'll see, we'll see an investment in these, in these economies? Well, I, I think that some countries are going to end up being more competitive than others. So I think um, Colombia, you know, is they can they can offer the best terms in the world, but they don't have very attractive resources, and they're dependent. It also depends, you know, what kind of resources you have. Colombia is really pushing the limits, frontier areas, unconventionals, all kinds of above ground problems with that. So I, I think that there's only so much that they can do. I think the more, and I also think that in Brazil. Even if they reverse, even if they change the pre-salt legislation, I don't think that necessarily means we're going to see an increase in investment. I mean, this, this proposal in, in Congress probably will be approved. Um, but I still think that this government is, is sort of ideologically not behind it. And so there are a lot of things that a government can do to undermine the legislation. You know, they don't have to hold bid rounds at all. I don't see Brazil holding bid rounds in an environment where Petrobras can't possibly participate and where they're going to get the lowest possible you know, bonuses and, and royalties because of low oil prices. Um, I think what, where I, I think might do better would be you know, Mexico, I think, continues to be attractive. I think you know, they'll, they'll definitely see some investment in their deep water bid round. Um, I think Argentina could become a very interesting prospect. So I think you know, they're all competing, but some will do better than others. Terrific. Well, Juan, we've given you a great parade of horribles. So, uh, so how is the U.S. government? Um, uh, first, I mean, how are you preparing for the potential political um, uh, fallout uh, in the hemisphere? Um, and and where are you? Uh, where are you on offense? Well, first of all, thanks, David, for the invitation, and thank you for all the recommendations with the Atlantic Council that uh, that you've put out and helped inform our policy decision making over the last couple of years. Um, I was introduced, but I want to make very clear that. I am not Amos Hochstein. Uh, he's our special envoy for energy issues, not just because he has great hair and I have none, um, but because he's actually the expert who's actually been leading our energy diplomacy uh, throughout the world. But um, specifically, we've been working together on, on, on the region. But since my time with the vice president, maybe I'll take a minute just as an introductory, um, is when I was at the White House working for the vice president, we actually sat down with him to talk about his regional priorities. And I'll mention the ones that are relevant here. When we talked about energy, the three areas that he mentioned, and they were kind of maybe prescient to the moment that we're in right now, were number one, the energy reform in Mexico provides an excellent opportunity for cooperation to complete the North American energy picture uh, and to use it as a platform to cooperate in areas like Central America and the Caribbean. And then the second piece was, how do we actually focus our efforts to ensure that we're promoting uh, regional cooperation in, in the Caribbean on energy security? And uh, of course, in Central America, the, the, the migration situation was one that led to this big um, initiative by the administration that has a very, very robust energy component associated with it. So we've been talking largely about the energy producers. These are all the energy importers that have a long history of being dependent on, on very expensive imported diesel. And so since starting with the vice president and then working now with Amos and his team in my perch at the State Department on Central America and the Caribbean, what we've been doing over the last two years is first starting with the Caribbean. You saw that the Vice President launched the Caribbean Energy Security Initiative during his trip to the Dominican Republic in 2014. We had this Caribbean Energy Summit that 
we partnered with the Atlantic Council on in January of, of last year. And what we've done is, since the president traveled to Panama, uh, he, he first stopped in Jamaica for the Summit of the Americas, he launched this, these two task forces, the Central America and Caribbean task force, that would essentially, with the United States as, as, a, as a galvanizing force for regional cooperation, try to work with these governments to identify what the stumbling blocks were toward you know, regional energy security in each of these regions, actually come forward with, with a report with serious recommendations, um, and, and try to find, you know, not just to, to these countries, but also what the United States could do. Um, and what we've been doing is, since then, actually having these task force conversations with Amos. Amos actually was met with uh, the Caribbean community in October of last year. Um, he was in Costa Rica on February 3rd while I was in El Salvador negotiating these kind of regional issues. And the hope is that we actually have another summit in the near future to see how far we've come. And, and, and the focus has been, and these are familiar to you, they remain the same and we can dive into them in more detail, is that both of these are regions that not just in, depend on imported fuel, they have poor regulatory frameworks. They, they, they sometimes struggle for, to advance regional cooperation. The challenges they know are there. Uh, um, and, and there are, in some ways, there are obviously national interests that prevent them from engaging in a regional discussion. And what our role has essentially been is to help provide technical assistance, help identify what the challenges are to financing projects, um, and helping essentially establish a roadmap to actually address some of these issues with the end goal of having these six or so, or you know, these several economies in both the Caribbean and Central America that are small and not necessarily as attractive to large investors, make them into integrated larger economies that are more dynamic. So I'll just leave it at that. Terrific, and, and just a word and then maybe also on your, about Venezuela and some of the crisis countries. Um, how's the department thinking broadly about how it might anticipate or manage um, what could be some significant unrest? Well, I mean, on Venezuela, what I'll say is, and uh, this is not my issue at the State Department, but it's, it's something that obviously everybody's thinking about is our policy now is the one that has been the same for a while, which is that the only way out of the current political crisis in Venezuela is political dialogue, real political dialogue. And that's something we've been encouraging from, from the beginning. And that's the only way out of you know, the, the current situation in, in Venezuela. And I think at the same time, we're, we're, we're looking at the situation, and not just there, but in other places. And we realize that we have limited ability of influencing the internal outcome of these countries. But we're actually engaging in regional discussions to try to see how we can get, you know, we understand that Venezuela has to make some very tough economic decisions. Uh, there is a very tough political environment. The, the Supreme Court invalidated essentially the authority of the, of the National Assembly. That's something that we came out very strongly against because it goes against that spirit of dialogue. And at the same time, I think our Central America Caribbean strategy still holds. And I, the timing is no mistake is that by advancing the Caribbean Energy Security Initiative, not as an anti-Venezuela strategy, but a pro-Caribbean strategy, trying to actually get this region to not depend on Venezuela or the United States or whomever through an approach that looks at renewables, that looks at geothermal, that looks at gas, and essentially sets them on a path where they don't necessarily have to depend on one country or another for their source of oil or That's source of fuel. That's terrific. I want to come back to Venezuela, but let's stay on, on Central America and the Caribbean. This report you were, you were kind to mention really suggested that, um, that 
the, since Venezuela's support for Petrocariba was likely to decline, these countries had used the time to get off fuel oil and onto uh, either natural gas or renewables or combination. And that seems to be moving. Uh, uh, Amos is working on electricity integration um, as well as uh, gas pipeline integration. There have been some renewable projects and two potential LNG projects. Mm -hmm. But the countries have also been, been taking some internal measures. And I wonder, Luisa, if you could talk a little bit about the, the debt buybacks, um, that how uh, because uh, that's, I think, been one of the most significant things that's happened in the, in the, in the subregion. I think it, it was mostly uh, led by Venezuela because it was in dire need of cash. Um, but it offered this, uh, these two uh, countries, Dominican Republic and, and, uh, and Jamaica, uh, which are the most important debtors uh, in, in the Petrocaribe balance sheet. Uh, um, it offered, okay, I'll um, reduce your debt by 50%, and, but you pay it right now. Uh, and so I think the, the countries, given that that is, regardless of, uh, of, uh, of what type of debt it is, it is a debt in their balance sheet. It is an opportunity of, uh, okay, 50%. I reduce my debt. This is always important from a creditworthiness perspective. Um, and both of them just issued debt at a lower rate in order to be able to pay that. So they substituted. Uh, it's not that they had to pay that out of cash, out of their own pockets. They just uh, uh, tapped the markets. Uh, uh, and uh, for much lower than a debt that they would have uh, to pay anyways. Clever. Well, let's, let's come back to Venezuela. And, uh, and Lisa, maybe, um, maybe you can paint a couple of scenarios for us. What's going to happen in Venezuela? Are we looking at reform, recall, uh, uh, or status quo? What's, what, well, what the, what's the path forward? There, there are several different possible scenarios. Um, one is the opposition is, is considering um, a constituent assembly to rewrite the Constitution. Um, to get Maduro, Maduro out of office. Another possibility is a referendum, um, but there are several steps. They first have to get approval to hold the repre re referendum. They have to get enough signatures to have the referendum. Then on the referendum, people have to say, yes, I want to hold another election, and then they have to hold another election, and all of it has to happen in a very short time frame. Another possibility is that Maduro just decides to resign. His vice president takes over. His vice president is thought to be a little more moderate, so you know there could be some changes there. And then maybe a, a possible last option is a military coup. Um, so I think you know it's I think all of these, um, you know, which scenario is most likely? I, I think there's a possibility of the option of the opposition winning more likely through the referendum than, than through the constituent assembly. The government still has a lot of sort of political and legislative or legal tools, especially through the Supreme Court, to make this process very difficult. But it's it's now for, for the first time a real possibility. I think, you know, and then the question is, you know, what will, would each of these scenarios mean for the economy, for the oil industry, um, which is which would be a later priority, I think. I, I think just on, on Venezuela, I mean, I think that, that you know, at least the scenarios, I think that one critical thing as well as on the signatures is then, is then the, the court has to actually validate that the signatures are, are authenticated signatures, right? And so the problem is, is that Chavismo controls basically all organs of the government. And so as we saw with the, uh, with the elections um, and, and, and with, the new, with, the, with the new Congress, is even though the opposition won a supermajority, well, the, the court stepped in and said, actually, no, you really didn't win a supermajority. A couple, a couple of these posts are, 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 not, are not valid. And so I think that the, there's going to be this constant wrestling between these the, 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 what the opposition is going to try to do and what the levers of the state government or the national government are going to allow it to do. 
I don't think, you know, I think these panels are always great when there's a little bit of, of, uh, of disagreement among the panelists. I don't think a military coup is, is possible because the, you know, the government is paying, you know, they're, I mean, they're, they're paying everything they can, you know, they're giving money to the generals and everybody to keep them very happy uh, because they, they realize from, you know, history that you got to keep, keep the military in the barracks. And, and provide whatever type of, you know, there's a new uh, 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 fund that was created as part of President Maduro's announcements this week with the 60-fold increase in, in gasoline prices. Um, and that, that money's gonna go into this new uh, national mission fund, I believe they're calling it, which is, uh, which is, which is off, off, off the account, uh, beholden to nobody, and that's money that can be used to pay off the military, to do whatever the, the government needs to do to, to keep people, uh, keep people uh, happy that are important for its, its power, and so, you know, I, I think that you know, on these different scenarios, that they're they're all really uh, they're all really challenging scenarios, and I think that the, the challenge is going to be, you know, which scenario is going to be most likely for the opposition to be able to wrest as much authority as possible. But then also for the opposition, the question is, do you really even want to govern now? I mean, with with seven hundred percent inflation, um, with you know the the exchange rate, the the you know the new exchange rate of the bolivares fuertes, and they still call them. That means strong, your strong bolivars, and they still use the word strong when talking about their, their currency. When, they, when, you, when you have the rate at, at 10 to 1 for the official rate, but the black market rate is actually 1,000 to 1. I mean, what kind of economy is this? And so I think, I think that the, the, there's going to have to be a tipping point at which point the opposition also decides that, that this is really the moment, moment to, to, to come in and where, where um, Chavismo and his cronies won't blame the opposition for, the, for their uh, economic deterioration. Okay. Let me ask Daniel your view, and then Luis, I want to ask you how much time they have to, to model, you know, to debate over this stuff before the economy just collapses. Uh, I mean, I, I think something has already changed in Venezuela. Clearly, we've seen a, you know, a, a very serious deterioration over the past few years with an economy that, that's in, in, you know, one, in, in, in really, really bad shape, right? But I think something really changed with the, with the elections and, 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 and the opposition's victory to the extent that now for the opposition, I think they've already made a decision. I think they made a decision many years ago that they wanted to go to power. They just haven't been able to do so. And now I think they realize that that's easier than it was in the past. It's not easy, but it's, it's more possible. And at least they could have the popular support. Second, I think it, it really changed the, the, the view that the, the Chavistas have about their own political survival, which is that now they know that they can be forced out. They can lose an election or something else could happen. And now they have an actor in front of them that actually has power. And, and I think you know, there's, there's three key actors here in Venezuela, right? The, the government or the Chavismo, the opposition, they know what they want, right? One wants to stay in power, the other one wants to take the others. And then you have the population, right? Which so far has been divided. And I think the key is how those three play. We already know what the opposition wants, which is to get rid of the government. I think for now, we still know that the government wants to stay in power because they know that it's a zero-sum game. It's still not clear, I think, what the majority of the electorate wants. Clearly, they wanted to punish the government, but I think it's not clear that they really want to see Maduro out. But I think the key variable to watch are going to be two things. I mean, one is if at some point it starts to become more manifest beyond the electoral issue that the population wants to see regime change. I don't think that's clear yet, but you could start to see that. And that, I think, is going to affect the actions of the other two. And second is what happens inside the government. That includes the military. So far, I think their, their political survival was never really at risk. I think it, people speculated that they could be thrown out, but that was never really in their thinking. Now it clearly is in their thinking. So I think the question is, if at some point, driven by the concern about the economy or the concern about the future, you start to have movement inside the government coalition to start to 
um, define a transition. I think the difficulty in Venezuela is that it's such a polarized uh, political situation, right, that we've seen in other countries, and a political system that's so rigid in many ways designed by Chavez that it's hard to see those things happen in the political system, which may require the, the population to start to really exert that pressure, and then you can enter into a very messy, messy process. We said they have much time, or is the economy going to force their hand? Well, let, let me start by saying that. Let me, let me give the point of view of Venezuela <laughs> in this debate. Uh, um, I think what happened on December 6th uh, and the supermajority that the opposition won has to be seen as a shock to the political system. The literature on this type of regimes, which are competitive authoritarian regimes, says that um, uh, when these uh, regimes lose an election, uh, in, in some cases, it does, you start a process of transition. And what happens is that the layers of authoritarianism get, uh, get, uh, gradually become, become, get, uh, get eliminated. Um, I have no doubt that Venezuela is going through a transition process. Uh, and I think there's a significant risk that Maduro does not survive this year. I think those risks is not necessarily only because of the politics. It's because Venezuela is living a, a, uh, a crisis of magnitudes not seen since the Civil War in the 19th century. Uh, and so it is, it, and it, it is the kind of thing that when uh, some, some, uh, one issue is when a country has a deterioration that is a very gradual deterioration and something completely different is when you start to see from uh, one year to the next a 180% inflation that is probably going to lead to a hyperinflation. You start to see changes in prices of 30% or 40% or 50%. You start to see a scarcity of everything. I mean, what we're seeing is a collapse of imports into Venezuela and the private sector saying we are facing a humanitarian crisis. Um, it is not easy uh, uh, for an for a, uh, unpopular president like Maduro, even if he's completely chained to power, uh, uh, to survive this kind of, uh, of stress. Um, so what I think is that at the end, the system, uh, I, we, I agree with, uh, with the others that we don't know exactly how that's going to take place. And what I see is that the opposition and the private sector are completely uh, uh, in, in agreement that if, they, if uh, nothing happens with Maduro, Venezuela is going to head into a very socially and politically complex situation that could lead to, to, uh, to things that we don't want to see. And so I think they are preparing the grounds. We don't know how this is going to evolve. We don't know what's, if it's going to resign, if it's going to be a constitutional amendment, if it's going to be a recall referendum. What we know is that the opposition is using the National Assembly, setting the stage for a framework so that this transition can take place in a democratic way. Uh, how it's going to play out, I don't think we know because social explosions or social uh, events are very difficult to predict, but uh, at the very least, the ground is very fertile for such a, such a risk to happen. Juan, do you think the department's worried about whether Venezuela is going to use this crisis as a way to, to have a provocation with Guyana or with, uh, with Colombia? Well, what I would emphasize first is uh, the democratic process part before jumping into this is, you know, there have been discussions about what may happen. Will Maduro last or not last? In terms of U.S. policy, we're 100% focused on the process, right? And so you want actually a democratic process to go forward. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, we could talk about the economic decisions that have to take place in Venezuela. I think all of you are familiar with them um, that are actually part of this political process that is unfolding that has been very well articulated here. Both of those cannot be discussed kind of in the abstract and they have real implications for the, you know, again, as was mentioned, the Venezuelan people on the street, right, in terms of scarcity, in terms of the security situation. 
ultimately, anything that happens is, has to be, of course, democratic. But it has to, there has to be a bridge for dialogue between both sides in order to actually go through this. And so that's something that we will continue to push for. And we're hoping to, with our you know, conversations with regional partners, trying to get, at, finally, for you know, actually have a real viable dialogue between both sides. They say crisis is a, is a great motivator for reform, a catalyst for reform. Well, we can hope that this is actually something that will lead to a real conversation for the first time between the opposition uh, and, the, and the Chavista government. Now, in terms of the, the, the threat of Venezuela to Guyana, certainly Guyana is, I think, as it's considering the discovery, the potential discovery by Exxon, it's thinking about how it's actually going to affect its own democratic governance six years from now. You know, such discoveries have a tendency to actually, you know, you have the, the resource curse that affects. So that's one thing that they're, they're really thinking about. And our ambassador down there and uh, has actually had very good conversations with, with the new government. And th they are thinking this through in a way that I think is very constructive and thinking about how they can actually manage future flows in a way that is actually good for Guyana. But in terms of the, the threat from Venezuela, I, I honestly, I personally don't see it. Right? Because I think that uh, individuals will, will play to their national politics as they will. But I think that there is, no, there is no way that anybody in the region would support any sort of conflict between Venezuela and Guyana. And so I think they would stand alone if they were actually to, to move toward a provocation. But there is, there is a, a process with the UN that's underway over this dispute. We remain neutral in such disputes, but we know that there is a process that they should continue to pursue, vice actually looking for, for an actual conflict. Great. Let's turn to Mexico, because we could spend uh, a lot more time on, on Venezuela and do, uh, and do a couple of lightning rounds on that. First, I guess, in terms of how Mexico is, uh, is handling this low oil price cycle, let's talk a little bit about the politics first. Uh, Jason, I don't know if you want to jump in. I mean, is this, is this going to shape the next election? Um, how is this playing for the PRI? Well, I mean, I think that the you know you know the work that we've done with with you, David, on Mexico's you know energy reform, I mean, it's clear that you know President Peña had to really you know staked his 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 uh, his agenda, his sexenio, on the series of reforms that he's that he's implemented. Um, energy reform being being one of the one of the top ones and one of the most um, difficult to do, given the the nationalistic nature in which Mexico's always viewed its 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 its, uh, its energy resources. No, he didn't, and no one could have foreseen the, the decline in low in low oil prices. And I think, as we as we talked about, you know, there still has been interest in in the in the different rounds, but not the degree of interest to which the Mexicans thought at, uh, at the time. And at the same time, there's been with Emilio Lozoya was the head of Pemex. There's been a a, 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 a move towards greater efficiency of, of Pemex, but uh, you know the reshuffle that uh, President Peñaito did uh, recently was a clear indication that he wants you know more efficiency with Pemex uh, with the with the new head um, uh, having having done this at the at the uh, Social Security Institute. And so, you know, I, I think that what's 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 clear is that you know we, we are a few years away from a from a critical you know presidential election in Mexico, and the reason that these reforms were done at the beginning of the term was so that the benefits of the energy reform and others would be seen by by 2018 by the next presidential election. And I think it's 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 increasingly concerning whether whether some of those reforms will actually be seen by the, by that next election, and, and if if they're not, what does that mean for the president and for his overall uh, overall reform agenda? And I think that you know 
what, what does that mean for the pre specifically? And I think that the, the pre is in the, is in the, the, the spot of um, the fact that uh, it's, it's kind of, it's the only one that can kind of, you know, you look at the other political, you look at the pre, you look at the PRD and the PAN, which are both in disarray right now. And the only reason that the uh, pre did well in the last elections was because it really, the other political, main political parties really couldn't, uh, uh, we're in such internal disarray, and so, you know, I think the pre is still well positioned to do to to to, to uh, well pre, still well positioned for the next presidential election, but it does open up the possibility of of a of an outsider candidate uh, to challenge the the status quo. You know, as we saw in the last uh, uh, state elections, uh, you know, an Amlo with the with you know with the uh, with the Moreno party, or whoever it happens to be from a, a, another party, and so I think that there is an increasingly. Um, Pressure on the main, on the main, on the, on the main political actors, specifically in the pre, to do whatever is possible to make the terms of the following concessions and, and, and bid rounds as, as as appetizing as possible to the to foreign oil companies, and at the same time to continue along the process of reforming of Pemex, which is, which is so critical, uh, in order to show that the benefits of this energy reform really are there by the time of the next presidential election. That's helpful. There's uh, a theory. Um, oh, I say first on the Mexican reform, I and mean, it's been pretty successful. On, on gas and power, um, but one of the things in our report we were most concerned about at the very beginning was whether Pemex would be able to embrace this very significant cultural change. And there's certainly an argument that um, it was too hard and that uh, La Soya moved too slowly, um, and that they didn't do the farm outs quickly enough, that they didn't sell enough assets quickly enough. So uh, I guess for both for Lisa and Luisa, is there a silver lining here? Is it possible that that we will now see a much more rapid implementation of the reform as planned? Um, or um, is it pretty much impossible to change the culture at Pemex? I think uh, uh, the new head of Pemex, uh, uh, Gonzalez, Jose Antonio Gonzalez, uh, I think he, uh, he comes with that mandate. He comes with a mandate. You have to tap into all the flexibility that an energy reform has given you. Uh, uh, and the, the way we look at that Mexico is that the government has a, a projection of 500,000 barrels per day in the next five years. Um, we don't uh, uh, disagree that you can get 500,000 barrels per day uh, from, the, uh, from, the, from the energy reform. We just disagree on the timeline. Uh, it's just not going to come in the next five years because most of what you have put on, on, online is really exploration contracts. Uh, we have looked at all the energy reforms in Latin America in the 1990s and looked at Colombia and, and looked at what is the timeline when oil production starts to increase. Uh, and the key to a very fast turnaround in, uh, in, 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 the, in the energy reform is whether you are auctioning marginal fields, which is the farmers, or you're doing something with the farmers. Um, and so I think that the weak link of the energy reform is, has been Pemex. Uh, because if you wanted to have an impact in the next two to three years, you should have started with the farmers, because these are either producing fields or about to produce fields with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, infrastructure uh, very close by, so that you shorten significantly the timeline. And we saw a turnaround in Venezuela in the 1990s of, of two years. Uh, one to two years, oil production was already increasing by 100 to 200,000 barrels per day. So I think they missed, um, I think they, when, when they conceived uh, uh, the oil auctions, they conceived it with an idea of $100, uh, $100 per barrel. And, uh, and well, the, uh, the oil price collapsed, and they should have, uh, I think, become much more flexible on the timing of the auctions, that they should have done the farmers. Now, and we have actually not understood why it has taken so long, uh, because it is so so important for Pemex that has very limited capex, has, I mean, it's, uh, and has limited operations.
operational capacity uh, uh, that they should have done the pharmacy in a much faster way. I think that, uh, that what has happened with Femex in the first months of the year, um, the repricing of risk in the market of Femex um, in, a, in, a, in a government that really cares about what the markets think of them. Uh, they really care about differentiation in relation to the, all the other emerging markets, and they do care about being proactive and, um, and containing risk. Uh, uh, so the elevation of payments as a risk, I think actually, as the Colombia Standard & Poor's negative outlook, is going to accelerate uh, the use of all of this. So I will not be surprised that they actually finally do uh, the farm outs. And if they do the farm outs, then 2018 could look different uh, because uh, because then you do have FDI coming and and you do have FDI that is coming on the I, I would agree on the electricity on the pipeline front uh, uh, so I mean I, I think there's 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 still too long for 2018 but I do think that decisions have to be made right now and they have to accelerate the full use particularly of PEMEX of the energy reform. Lisa, deep water, people still care. Well, I just wanted to add something also about PEMEX to, to explain that I think a lot of the problems with PEMEX were inherited and continue despite the reform. The reform really didn't address the problems with Pemex. The biggest ones were huge pension liabilities, taxes that were way too high. I mean, Pemex is actually, if they had a government take that was more in line with industry norms, they would be much more profitable. They're actually operating at a loss. You know, even at these prices, they would be profitable, but the government take is just so high. And I think with the pension issue, you know, they have historically had the highest number of employees per barrel produced of any oil company in the world. And they also have huge pension liabilities. That's their biggest you know, constraint for you know, their ratings. Um, so those issues weren't really addressed. And the other thing that wasn't addressed in the reform is that Pemex is, is tied to Hacienda, the finance ministry, in a way that no other oil company, no other state oil company is. I mean, they're literally a budget line in the budget. So I think that until some of those issues are addressed, and Losoya tried to take some of those issues on, um, you know, he, there was clear need for layoffs. He tried to do that. He did lay some people off, but it was all contract workers. He couldn't, you know, get really the, the, the relationship with the union would continue to be very contentious. Um, so I think that the new CEO is going to inherit those same problems and still are, is going to face the same difficulties. You know, he's maybe better pre prepared, but there are some fundamental changes that need to happen. And the deep water? Uh, well, I mean, I still think that, um, you know, the deep water, the government has postponed it kind of to the maximum limit allowed by the law. Um, so I think they're hoping for recovery in prices. It's not looking like that's going to happen in the timeline that the law will allow. So. Um, I think that it's not going to be, you know, what, what was originally expected, but I still, you know, I wouldn't expect it to be a, a total failure. I think they've learned from, you know, if you look at the three, at, at all the rounds that have happened in, or the tenders that have happened as part of the round until now, clearly they, there's been adjustments and, and a learning process and, and improvement. So I would be, you know, hopeful. Anyone? Different view? No, I mean, one thing I would add is that, you know, I think obviously everyone got very excited when Mexico opened the sector, and I think it was a very transformational thing, right? I mean, but, but it's true that they mismanaged it, right? And uh, I think, you know, the direction has been true, but it, it wasn't just the decline in oil prices, right? I mean, they, they created bad contracts at the beginning, they stick with them, then they changed it when they failed, but it's been a very slow process, they keep one thing, then they change it again. Um, there's been clearly, I think, to the surprise of many, an enormous mismanagement by the president of his own cabinet, right? I mean, a lot of the problems in Pemex were 
not having the discipline in Pemex, but also the fights between Pemex and the Energy Secretariat and Hacienda, which I think affected everything else, right? And those things may start to get, I think, better now that they've realized, I think, I think Reese's is, is, is point is, is, is very good, that I think what really scared them is, is that the market suddenly started seeing, well, now we have a problem in Mexico. Now maybe Pemex is really in problem, and if Pemex is in trouble, the Mexican sovereign may be in trouble, and I think that scared them, and that may force them into action, right? But I think if we really step, take a step back and see that you're coming out of a country with, a, you know, with, where, where Pemex you know, controlled the oil sector for 70 years, where even though I think from outside it looked like a very easy thing to do the reform, it was politically very uncertain, and look at the longer term, then I think that's where I think the Mexico story starts to look much more positive, right? That I think you know, it's a story of them learning and eventually getting to that point. The question is, I think, going back to the point that was mentioned, if we have a change in direction in 2018, right? And I think that may be affected by the lower oil prices, but I'm not sure it's that dependent, because in the end, the Mexican economy doesn't really depend that much on the, on the oil prices, right? If the global conditions continue as they do, and we end up with growth still above three, below 3%, and still with the corruption, and still with all those problems, we may end up with a change in direction in 2018, even if they get the terms right in the next couple of years. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're certainly all connected. I think um, uh, Mexico has come very far, very fast, and they have listened well and adapted, but they've hit a terrible market. But if people think the regime might change in 2018, it's gonna be very hard to attract investment over the next couple of years, so it's, uh, it's in a bad way. Let's talk about Brazil a little bit, and let me, let me come back to you uh, first, Daniel. Um, does Gilma survive the rest of her term? <laughs> we think yes. Um, that, uh, no, I mean, our view is that she, there's a 40% chance that she's out and a 60% chance that stays. So it's a pretty high percentage that, that, that she's out. Uh, clearly, I think the move on the impeachment to try to do it quickly, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's problematic for the ones that want to see her impeach. It's good for the ones to see her uh, stay. But I think the problems in Brazil is that it's just very hard to see how you have uh, sustainability of the current situation for the next three years, right? I mean, you have a government that it's very unpopular, but I think politically still strong, right? I mean, it's still the, the, the largest party in Brazil, and very much when they're getting into trouble, they, 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 they rally around their, 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 their issues, right? And, and it's, I think, a very uncertain process to go through a, a replacement in, in the government. And so the issue is yes, right? I mean, I think the key, the key variable is what happens with the corruption scandal, really, right? I mean, much like Venezuela, the economy is in free fall and in very bad shape. I think the political system can't really work its way out to resolve it, in part because the PT is still strong, because there's divisions between the other two parties as to what to do, whether to get her out or not. I think there's a lot of fear as to what that means. Uh, and as long as the corruption scandal keeps, you know, Things, things moving in Brasilia, it's just going to be very difficult the political system can resolve. I mean, I guess the question is, if the political, if, if this corruption scandal starts to ease a little bit in the next few months, then I think you can start to see the political class starting to realize, well, we're in real trouble in the economy, right? We already lost investment grade, Petrobras is in real trouble, and then maybe start to move with some reforms, which maybe stabilize Brazil, maybe not in an ideal way, but at least in a way that can make it, allow the government to make it 2018. If the corruption scandal continues to worsen and then the political class can resolve, then I think we're gonna to start to be talking very seriously about Dilma's survival again. 
Okay, before we open to questions, anybody with a very different view? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I think on a, on a positive note, I think the corruption scandal has shown the strength of the institutions and the strength of the rule of law in Brazil. I mean, who would have thought that you would have, you know, the uh, top political leaders, uh, top business leaders being brought into brought into jail in the in the middle of the night? And there's sure there's questions about is the judiciary going too far as part of this process? A lot of the preemptive detentions that are happening, there are questions as, as, insofar as the judicial reach. But I, but I think in some regards to, to try to paint a, a positive picture, that this corruption scandal has shown um, some of the strengths of the institutions in Brazil. And I think that uh, that, that still has not, um, you know, but on, on, on Daniel's very good point, though, is, is that, you know, Dilma still faces a very tough road ahead. I mean, any president where you're, where you're the head of state for a country where the inflation rate is higher than your pop approval rating, you know things are not good. <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I think that you know the other thing, that, you know, the other challenge with Brazil right now is obviously the Zika virus, and you know, I think that Dilma's been able to um, somewhat effectively actually use that to try to change the conversation in Brazil and change that conversation domestically away from the economy and away from the scandal. And she's she's going in and and she's doing what she does best, which is micromanage, and she's going in and visiting clinics and showing that her government's and you know in charge on this. But I think this this is something else that could have real. Uh, Consequences, especially if it deters tourists from from going to Brazil as part of the uh, as part of the Olympics or to Rio specifically as part of the Olympics in in August, and this is particularly problem problematic for Rio because you know every state in Brazil is legally required to run a surplus, and 20 of 27 states failed to run a, have failed to run a surplus, and the worst violator of that is Rio, and so Rio really depends on that will really depend on that on that income coming in as part of the uh, the tourism boom expected uh, with with the Olympics. Terrific. Okay, quickly from. Luis and then we'll open up to questions. Um, what, uh, we actually are negative on, on Brazil because uh, we think that we have not seen uh, uh, the worst. It's very difficult to stabilize Brazil because you do have the Petrobras issue. Petrobras is the corporate in Latin America with the largest dollar debt. Uh, uh, the amount of debt service that it has to pay this year is about $18 million. Uh, they do not have money to pay both CAPEX and, the, uh, and, the, uh, and their uh, uh, amortizations and, and debt service coming due. Uh, um, which means, and that is why, there is so much concern that the government will actually have to recapitalize Pe uh, uh, Petrobras. If you recapitalize pe uh, Petrobras, you're putting Petrobras debt in your books. So in a way, the Petrobras risk is actually driving the sovereign, and it's going to become a problem. Uh -uh. So unless Petrobras can actually be successful in the sales of assets, it has like a $15 billion asset sale uh, 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 goal in order to be able to pay for its, uh, for its foreign financing uh, uh, requirements, and uh, we just don't see how they're going to do that in this environment. And so while uh, uh, there is a very positive uh, 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 collateral on the, on the institutions in Brazil, with an economy free for, in free fall, which is 6% of decline the last numbers on an annualized basis, inflation at 10%, and, and a government with very little uh, uh, power uh, to be able to change the dynamics and with a significant risk in front of it, which is uh, the Petrobras, that even if it's not a corruption, it is the financing of Petrobras in this environment that I think is going to keep the Petrobras. Uh, the, the Brazil story in a, in a very difficult uh, 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 note. No, and, and I mean, I just, I, I think there's also many other, like, uh, shoes that may fall in Brazil, right? There's the credit part, there's the banks part, right? I mean, which, 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 which were overexpanded during the boom and are still very problematic, right? The political system that can't really get itself together, right? So, 
it's, it's, it's a difficult story for sure. Good. All right, I want to open it up to, to questions. Oh, we'll come back in a second. Um, uh, and uh, I think you all know the drill. Uh, stand up, state your name and affiliation, short question, and then um, the panel will answer. Not everybody has to answer every, every question. Um, the gentleman here in the back uh, is first. And we'll take, we'll take two at a time. Sure. Alex Sanchez from the Center for International Maritime Security. A month ago, Rockhopper discovered huge amounts of oil deposits off the Falklands. Do you think that's going to affect in any way, in any positive way, Argentina's relations with, over, with the UK and its claim over the Falklands? Could Macri try to pr promote some kind of cooperation between the, the Argentine government and, and Rockhopper to try to profit from this oil? Thank you. And let's take another one. Here in the uh, second row. Hi, um, my name is Marcelo. I'm uh, working in the Mexican embassy, and my question is regarding the politics in Mexico. Uh, in particular, um, Lopez Obrador is uh, suggesting to renationalize uh, the oil industry as well as probably other sectors. Um, do you think, were he to be elected, which is currently the most popular candidate, um, would he be able to pass that or make any headway in his socialistic agenda? Terrific. All right. Offshore, oil offshore Falcons is actually good news. And uh, I can make please. On the first one, on the, on the Falcons, it seems to me that, well, the first thing I, I would be skeptical as to the geological viability or the commercial viability of those, right? But even if they are, it seems to me that that's going to create an enormous problem for Argentina and for any government, right? I think it's quite the opposite of cooperation, right? I mean, it would just create enormous pressure to actually make it, ensure that that doesn't uh, go through. And I think, you know, the, the nationalistic response there will make it very difficult, right? So I, I would envision a very complicated situation. And just a few thoughts on, on Mexico. I mean, I think reversing the energy reform completely and nationalizing the sector just is very difficult, right? I mean, constitutionally, legally, I mean, it can be done, right? I mean, we've seen it in other countries and it's just very painful, right? And, uh, and I think any government would pay an enormous economic and political cost if, if they do it. But I think the risk that you have is, that, is, is the direction that you have of the opening, right? Either that you don't have more openings or that it's very much Pemex driven, right? And so that affects, I think, the viability of the opening less than a reversal. And I think that's the way, the concern that people have. Lisa? to add uh, on, the, on the Pemex question, on the Mexico question, I think it would be very difficult to re reverse the legislation to get the majority. But as the same point that I made about, about the, the president in Brazil, the president, the executive branch has a lot of power over the implementation of these reforms. So if the executive is not behind it, they can totally you know, block the implementation and, and kind of you know, not go through with the reform. They don't have to hold bid rounds. You know, there are all kinds of tools that they have. If they're not behind it, it, it really won't work. Yeah, and you also, I mean, you, you need Congress too, right? So even if, even if Ammo were to win, I mean, I think everyone's points are excellent points, but also even, even, even beyond the idea of renationalizing, which, which wouldn't happen, you know, he still needs to get political, you know, he still needs to get parties together in Congress to get through any type of agenda. And that's going to be very, very difficult to do to get any support from the PRI, the PAN, or, or his, former, his former PRD in, in, in any type of, of major actions. And, and I don't think we're going to see another Pacto por Mexico uh, with, 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 with in, this, in this situation. Great. Any questions? Gentleman here and gentleman there. Yes, my name is Martin Rodriguez. And my question would be, um, 
What's your found? take on the creation of a new energy company in the hands of the military in Venezuela? A piece recently appeared in Caracas Chronicles that claims that this might be a way for PDVSA to hide its assets in the case of a default, if you can comment on that. That's great. And then pass to the gentleman over your, uh, over your right shoulder. Hi, uh, David Anderson from Zurich Insurance. Questions on capital controls. So outside of Venezuela, do you, does anybody on the panel see a spreading of capital controls to countries like Brazil and under other countries in the region under pressure? Great. Pedavesa question? Um, look, I, what I can tell you is that nobody in Venezuela has any idea why this was uh, approved. Uh, uh, but you can see, uh, uh, given the, uh, the way that President Maduro has operated, uh, uh, is that he's buying support from the military. Um, whether this is the same as that you're going to start to hide uh, PDVSA assets, because there, there's this thing in the market about, uh, about if PDVSA defaults, uh, uh, then you're able to seize the external assets abroad. Um, one thing is to uh, approve a military company uh, uh, in Venezuela where you maybe or maybe not uh, have time, uh, uh, because implementation in Venezuela is a huge issue, uh, uh, have time to uh, uh, move some assets uh, uh, to, uh, to that military uh, complex. Uh, and a completely different thing is that you're going to think that external assets, I mean, that's a SEC, I mean, that's those external regulations will completely rule that. Uh, so, I, I mean, the, I think the, the concern of international uh, players that hold Venezuela and PDVSA bonds is if Venezuelan government ha creates another PDVSA internationally where it transfers it. So this is, seems a completely different thing, seems politically driven. Uh, uh, and, uh, and what I would say from every single thing that Maduro has created from scratch is that normally this takes forever uh, uh, to, uh, to get uh, uh, to, to occur. Great. Capital uh, controls. Yeah. I, mean, I think that one of the things that we saw as part of the era of high oil prices as well as high commodity prices was a masking of fiscal fiscal policies that really needed to be to be changed long, long a long time ago and I think one of those are our capital controls I think that one of the things I, I don't see this happening in Brazil I mean I think that what we've seen is the is the is the opposite is 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 a is an, uh, a desire to start to look to start to reorientate or, or begrudgingly to, be, to someone like Dilma, who is inherently more inward looking as the Brazilian economy has, has traditionally been, but to try to reorientate and look out toward the, toward the outside world more, which would mean not, not imposing things like capital controls. I mean, even, even last, uh, last summer, you know, there was an indication that, you know, okay, Brazil was interested in potentially pursuing this with, through Mercosur or not through Mercosur, depending on you know, before the election of Macri, pursuing a free trade agreement, you know, with the Europeans that has been, that has been long on the table and just Mercosur hasn't been able to get its act together. And so I think that, that, that that that, that that more outward looking economic orientation as well as what has been done in, in Argentina with the new Macri government getting rid of the getting rid of the capital um, uh, controls also a more outward looking uh, economic economic policy reaching out more to the U.S. and the Europeans and not being dependent on the Chinese um, I think that shows it, it shows the the wave in the region that that the capital controls is, I mean they, they don't work super question in the very back of the room Hello, my name is uh, Ekaterina Sobel. I'm from Russian News Agency, Ria Novosti. Uh, I have a question. Um, uh, Senator Heinkamp of North Dakota uh, told a few days ago uh, that the target, um, the target market uh, for uh, U.S. American oil is uh, Latin America. Uh, 
tell me please, uh, how can the embargo lifting uh, change the oil uh, market in Latin America? And uh, do you have any forecast to impact uh, the GDP, for example? Thank you. So. Oh, oil the oil embargo, right? yeah. Okay, oil exports. Right, so I think the, uh, the oil embargo is up and, uh, and uh, some of the early flows of, uh, remarkably, of crude oil have been to Venezuela. Um, <laughs> not exactly what the, maybe the lifters had in mind, but, um, but what are, uh, I guess, um, how big of a market um, uh, is U.S. oil likely to be uh, uh, in, uh, in the hemisphere? Well, actually, what, what we have seen in the last 10 years is that a significant surplus of oil exports that Latin America had in relation to the U.S. has significantly been compromised to the extent that it's really not more than, it's less than $1 million. It used to be more than $3, $4 billion of surplus of oil exports to the, to, of Latin America as a whole to the U.S. When you look at the U.S. data, uh, the amount of uh, petroleum products exports uh, uh, that the U.S. exports uh, to uh, Latin America is astonishing. I mean, for example, uh, Lat uh, Mexico already has a negative oil trade balance with the U.S. Well, Me Mexico is already an, a net importer of oil, if you count in, uh, uh, take into account the gasoline and others. And I've always seen this as the fact that uh, the U.S. can really not export light oil. It exports it through a, a significant uh, increase in the capacity utilization of petroleum products. So you are exporting oil, just exporting oil, processed oil, because there is a, a refining deficit in, in, in the region. Um, the thing with the region is that uh, the, the crews in Latin America are very heavy. Uh, um, and so uh, uh, one of the things that, uh, that has happened in, in Mexico, in Colombia, in Ecuador, in Venezuela, is that they have uh, to import either light crudes or some kind of condensates or in order to be able to mix uh, the, their very heavy crudes. Uh, and so that is just like such a natural uh, market because Venezuela imported around 40,000 barrels per day of light oil from Algeria, Nigeria, and Russia uh, in, 2014, in 2015. So it just seems like a natural market for the U.S., and that's why the U.S. also did a swap with Mexico, light oil in exchange for heavy oil, because uh, uh, you know the, the, the shale oil is very, very, very light oil, uh, and the U.S. has a deficit of heavy oil. When you look at U.S. Uh, uh, oil imports, uh, what you see is that heavy oil imports have really not declined that much, and so that is a, that is a market that the, the Latin Americans the Saudis and the Canadians are all fighting for. It's not a market that is growing, but it's a market that is there. Uh, so it, it seems like a natural uh, uh, trade. But it's good. Good. If I could, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, did I just skip ahead? Please. The, uh, so I mean, one thing that maybe doesn't have to do directly with oil is, of course, you know, 10 years ago, who would have known that the Western Hemisphere was going to be the global epicenter of energy, right? But the, the, the challenge, and this, I think, goes with the Venezuela discussion that we've had, is that you've actually had countries in Central America and the Caribbean that have been benefiting not from just the, the financing plan from Petrocaribe, but the, the really the fiscal padding that it creates. And and what's happened is even though the prices are have dropped in you know in the Caribbean and Central America, they're favorable terms now in terms of access in the spot market, but the fiscal crunch is still there, right? And 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 so I think when we look at you know the changes in, in US uh, energy policy there has to be a national security component that's associated with it. Right now you actually have, yeah, Jamaica and the Dominican Republic did re renegotiate its debt with Petrocaribe, but you actually have Jamaica is, is doing all the right things by its IMF program. Um, and it's still facing fairly large debt overhang. And our, as are other countries in, 
in the Caribbean and, and, and most of Central America. And so I think there, it's important to really look at not just uh, the energy picture, where obviously everybody agrees diversification is, is key, but also access to finance, which is incredibly high in Central America and the Caribbean. And, and, and frankly, in an area where we've been focused on is making sure that we're advancing donor coordination to actually promote the growth of these alternative energy industries. So, so while you're not going to see this huge outflow to, of, of petroleum to the Caribbean and Central America to replace because these are private sector driven decisions, there is a very important national security component associated with it. Terrific. Lisa? Um, so I think, the, first of all, I don't think it's surprising at all that Venezuela would have imported the first barrels of light oil because they have a shortage of light oil for blending with extra heavy crude. And they export a lot of heavy crude to the US, which you know we don't find odd or controversial. But I also think in terms of lifting the crude export ban, one of the things that it's done is reduce the competitive advantage that US refiners had because they were getting light oil from the US that couldn't go anywhere else. And so now we're going to see a, a narrowing of the spread between WTI and Brent. And eventually, you know, this could mean uh, a reduction in crude oil uh, in uh, refined products to Latin America. And that's been one of the big effects of the crude oil export ban is that the US has a huge amount of extra refining capacity, most of which is going to Latin America. So that should change. At these prices, there's plenty to go around. Um, uh, the gentleman here in the uh, back row. Hi, thanks very much. Great panel. My name is Michael McCarthy. I'm from the Center for Latin American Studies at American University. Um, I wanted to sort of scale up a little bit from the weeds, if you will. We've had a really interesting technical discussion. Um, and this question, I think, is primarily for Juan, but I'd be interested in, in to hear other people's perspectives. Um, so one thing that's very interesting about discussions regarding energy, specifically in Latin America, is that it provides us with an opportunity to look at problems on a multiple or sort of cross-national cross perspective. In other words, not talking about the problems that the US faces necessarily just on a bilateral basis, but looking at problems across the region. So Juan mentioned in his remarks um, that you know, the United States is very interested in political dialogue um, between the United States and Venezuela. I guess in that same vein, I'm curious to what extent is energy providing um, a basis for a multilateral discussion about diplomatic issues in the hemisphere? You, you discussed the possibilities or sort of the budding existence of a U.S.-Caribbean dialogue. Um, what mechanisms exist for sort of scaling that dialogue up to diplomatic issues so that it's not just about the technical uh, front and helping change regulatory frameworks and so on and so forth like that and making the region less de less dependent. Um, and in that same vein, specifically, what are the mechanisms that are available? Um, will Cuba potentially be a part of that dialogue in the Caribbean? Um, and in the same vein, is there a possibility for a multilateral framework or venue for this discussion to, in fact, take place? The OAS doesn't strike me as the place where it would take place necessarily. Um, the Inter-American Development Bank, not really. So is there some other place or forum where we could have these discussions more formally? Thanks very much. Terrific. Right. Thanks for the, the question. I'll, I'll point out that the involvement of Cuba, I'll lead with that part, is, is already changing. So I was in Jamaica a couple weeks ago uh, to participate in a uh, Caribbean security dialogue. And the Jamaicans invited the Cubans to participate. Uh, and it's natural because the security challenges are requires, you know, uh, for the region, they require regional solutions. And it's natural for the Jamaicans to want to invite the Cubans. And they, uh, you know, form part of the official delegation. And we engage in the conversations about, about how to address some of these challenges. Um, I got to say, though, that, 
you know, multilateral diplomatic you know, cooperation on energy issues isn't something that we invented, right? You have, you have CARICOM and the Caribbean Development Bank, which have uh, obviously played a, a very active role, and they've been there long before we have been engaged. Uh, in Central America, you have SICA, um, and then you have the regional energy market. And I think the role that we have played um, largely is, is trying to serve as a convening force, perhaps, or, or a facilitating force to drive a regional agenda with the understanding that I think the best thing that we could do for the Caribbean and Central America in terms of security, in terms of poverty, in terms of pro prosperity, is addressing the energy security picture. And so in, in the Caribbean, what that has done, what that has a lot, you know, the focus has been understanding that there, there are regulatory challenges and governance challenges when it comes to not just energy regulation, but everything else. Uh, you have um, an incredibly high cost of financing in these countries. Uh, and then you have, you know, it would surprise you to know that donors don't always coordinate well. It's something that we could certainly do better. Um, and so in the Caribbean specifically, uh, through the Caribbean Energy Security Initiative, what we've actually been able to do is uh, the CARICOM has an energy uh, function to it. We've been actually working with the World Bank and the IDB to try to strengthen that capacity to establish a roadmap uh, for cooperation. We have been, in, in a, a, I think maybe a good specific example is when we had the Caribbean Energy Security Summit last January, we actually had a reception where we invited members of the private sector, the energy ministers, uh, regulators to just talk. And something as simple as that has led to $150 million investment by Fortress Capital in Jamaica, right? And so those are the types of things that, you, that we can actually play a role in promoting and we're gonna continue to promote. In Central America, I think working with the regional energy market, the, the challenges have always been there, right? I think the, the region has always understood them, but it, it's, it's very difficult to advance a regional agenda when you have each country that has um, its own national interests that they're trying to advance. And so what we've been actually trying to do over the, um, you know, I think for a while, but more so through the, uh, the president's task force, is trying to promote a conversation about what the role of Mexico is in Central America, right? Right now, that's Mexico-Guatemala cooperation. How to actually make full use of the CPAC line and get to a point where you can actually double its capacity. Uh, address the environmental challenges associated with the Panama-Colombia connection. And actually try to advance a regulatory framework that will you know, essentially make the economies of scale for these countries to cooperate. And, but, and so it's not necessarily a, I wouldn't use it as a stepping stone toward broader conversations. What has happened is, and I think Central America is perhaps the best example, is when we talk about the Central America strategy that you're all familiar with that the president requested a billion dollars for for fiscal year 2016, when we're talking about security issues, whether it be gang violence in El Salvador, whether it be you know, infrastructure in Guatemala, whether it be the role of police in Honduras, energy is a part of that conversation because it's now gotten to this point, and I'm not an energy expert, but now I'm finding myself when I'm talking about security issues in Central America or the Caribbean, energy is always one of the biggest parts of the conversation. So, right. And you've got the Energy and Climate Partnership of the Americas, and you've got the Summit of the Americas process. So a lot of places where you get to have conversations about transparency and fiscal systems and structures, not just about the, 
the technical piece of, uh, of energy. We've got exactly two minutes left, and we've gotten through this whole conversation without talking about China. So I could just get in 30 seconds or less, where's China in this whole process in Latin America? Are they, they, are they, are they stepping in to buy assets when they're cheap? Are they helping out Venezuela? Lisa? Um, well, I think they are stepping in to some extent. I mean, if you look at total lending, it's doubled almost between 2014 and 2015 to almost $30 billion. So there's definitely been an increase. Um, there's been some cases where, for example, uh, one of the tranches for Venezuela, they, they changed the loan terms where they said, you don't have to send a minimum number of barrels per day to us, and there's no sort of deadline. So you know, they, they made the terms a little bit easier for them. I don't think that they've you know, swooped in and saved Venezuela or Ecuador, but, but they definitely have been an important lender, and, and it's definitely increasing. I would say that the Chinese probably more for political reasons than financial reasons are concerned about what they've seen, right? They've seen that the Venezuelans might not be able to give the, 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 the 100,000 barrel oil that they, that they owe the Chinese, or they see that the new market government is now going to be looking back at these very shady contracts that, that Christina Fernandez de Kirchner negotiated with the Chinese. And so there's, what they're seeing for the first time, what they've never seen anywhere really in the world, is potentially some pushback from countries like Argentina uh, on some of these deals that they've struck. And what does that mean for them politically? Great. I see the Chinese as the, um, not the lenders of last resort, I see them as the suppliers of last resort. And I think that the leitmotiv is to export excess capacity. And so even in the, all the contracts that we see that they have with Venezuela, which Venezuela is one of the most important recipients, we have almost an exact match to match with the ramp up in Chinese imp uh, exports to Venezuela, that is in Venezuelan Chinese oil imports. And so all of, the con all of these contracts that Venezuela has with China, all of these loans are really not loans. They are completely attached to buying uh, Chinese services, buying Chinese uh, uh, parts, buying Chinese imports. So it is a very different dynamic. It is not a, it is not a multilateral a, a, a relationship where I am going to save you regardless. No, it, there is a, a functional and economic uh, uh, reason behind them, even if I do think that the Chinese do uh, have a, a, a political uh, sensitivity to, uh, to the problems that, uh, that the Maduro administration is facing and, uh, and have indeed, as uh, Lisa has said, restructured some of the loans. Just, just a few thoughts. I think it's true. I mean, I think you're, you're entering a period of, of clear affinities, right? I mean, the, in China, you're seeing a move away from natural resources and, and, uh, and, and from domestic growth to, towards, you know, towards a difference and a growing interest in the Chinese in, in different types of involvement, right? And in infrastructure and, uh, and in having their own industries, as, 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 as Luisa said, right? And obviously, you're also entering into a period where cheap money is still there, but it's not as cheap as it was before and where, and where external constraints are larger. So I think Latin American governments are going to be much more desperate to attract those investments. I think that the difficulty that, that it's going to occur is, as, as was mentioned before, a little bit what we saw in Argentina, what we saw in Brazil as well. Very large announcements, big numbers, but when you start to see the details, the requirements from the Chinese are just very d difficult to implement. I mean, they may be easier to implement in more semi-authoritarian regimes without an industrial base like Venezuela or even Ecuador, even though they're not getting. But it's very hard to see that happening in, in Argentina or, or Brazil with powerful labor unions and power businesses. So, in that sense, I think that's going to be a change. And I think what that's going to open is, is more an avenue for Washington, actually. I mean, not only for the gun, but also for the multilateral side, which happened, I think, underused. Argentina is the best example, right? I mean, they've been out, and now they're desperately trying to get in. But I think more and more, that's, that's one, one place where I think they're going to start looking at. And I'll be brief. I think anybody who's going to play a, any country that's going to play a positive role in the region's economic prosperity and security is welcome to the table. So we don't see it really as a zero-sum game 
as, as many people have described the role of China in the Western Hemisphere. That's an important point. On that positive note of consensus, thank you all for listening. And let's say thanks to our panel for a terrific, <laughs> terrific conversation. <laughs>